Welcome to Law X.0, a Bloomberg Law podcast dedicated to seeing around corners and preparing you for the next version of the legal industry. Welcome to Law X.0. I'm Dory Goldstein. And I'm Meg McAvoy. We're legal analysts for Bloomberg Law. Today we're talking about FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. FARA is a historically underutilized law, but the Department of Justice recently announced it's stepping up enforcement. That's right. Um, in fact, DOJ recently installed a new FARA chief who comes from former special counsel Robert Mueller's team, which seems appropriate because FARA became a big part of the Mueller investigation. That investigation led to several high-profile FARA enforcement actions, including one against Greg Craig. That's the attorney who was recently acquitted of charges over his work on behalf of the Ukrainian government. Here to tell us more about FARA and what it means for lawyers and businesses is Joe Moreno. Joe is a former federal prosecutor and a partner in Cadwallader's White Collar Defense and Investigations Group. Joe served in the counterterrorism section of DOJ's National Security Division, where he investigated money laundering, material support, and terrorism financing cases. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Let's start by talking about that high-profile case we mentioned, Greg Craig. He was recently acquitted of charges about lying under FARA. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, the the Greg Craig case is instructive for a number of reasons. Uh, One, because it's so recent, um, and also, two, because of how it worked out. And I think it speaks a lot to the department's future enforcement uh, priorities and policies and how this statute really should be used going forward. So back in 2012, Mr. Craig, who's a very highly respected Washington, D.C. attorney, uh, who was at Skadden Arps at the time, a wonderful mm-hmm. firm. For full disclosure, it was my first law firm <laughs> many years ago. Wonderful firm. And uh, when he was there, he did some work for the Ukrainian government, basically an internal report uh, prepared by him himself and, and other Skadden attorneys. Uh, had had to do with um, an assessment of a former prosecution of a former Ukrainian prime minister. Uh, so no problem there so far, right? Perfectly fine to do that work. Well, the Department of Justice at the time decided that uh, Mr. Craig and Skadden Arps, the firm, should have registered under this law called the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which we'll get into in a bit, but basically says, if you are operating as the agent of a foreign principal under certain circumstances, you have to register. So it's a disclosure statute. And they got into some back and forth about whether he should have registered. His position was he should not. Uh, the department ultimately did not charge him with failure failure to register because the five-year statute of limitations had run, but they did charge him with effectively lying to them, both in some correspondence regarding whether or not he should have registered and then having to do with a meeting in which he described his work for the Ukrainian government where the prosecutors felt that he had lied. And so uh, the, the case had some problems from the get-go, one, with, one being the length of time between the time these right. events happened and the time they ultimately uh, decided to indict him. Uh, second, big warning sign should have been the Southern District of New York ultimately passed on the case. Now, that should have been, now we don't know the equities and the dynamics about why that was done, but ultimately it was passed by them, picked up by federal prosecutors here in, the, in Washington, D.C. Now, great office, but that should be also a sign of, you know, now you have an old case. You have a case that was passed on by a premier, you know, office of the Justice Department and picked up by another office. So as they got closer to trial, Mr. Craig was adamant he was going to fight these charges. Uh, A few weeks prior to trial, the judge threw out one of the two charges against him, basically saying that um, 
the statute was unclear as to whether or not not an application to register, but correspondence regarding a person's registration could be the basis for basically a false official statement charge. And so she threw that out. Okay. Should, should have been another warning sign about right. this case. But the prosecutors charged ahead. And so the, the single charge which remained, which was effectively that at a meeting back in 2012, purportedly Mr. Craig lied to prosecutors about exactly what he was doing and some media contacts that he had following his work for the Ukrainian government. Uh, and at the end of the day, in a few short hours, the jury heard the case and they acquitted him, basically saying, look, we don't feel the government met its beyond a reasonable doubt burden. And that, um, you know, it, there were some jurors that were that were interviewed after the fact and Politico reported that, you know, some said, you know, he may have used some very, very lawyerly language in some of his responses to the department, but ultimately we just didn't feel the prosecutors had the case. And so we can talk about some of the takeaways here, but big, big black eye for the department coming, you know, barely six months after this grand announcement that FARA was going to become a new priority for the National Security Division. Sure. Interesting. And we'll, and we will talk more about what the implications are for DOJ um, in working with FARA going forward. But can you give us some background on what the elements are of a FARA violation? So this is an old law that is being applied in new ways. So what, what does it take to violate FARA? Sure. So you're right, uh, Meg. It is an old law. It was passed in 1938. And while it has been amended over the past 80 years, uh, it still very much reflects a World War II era mindset. I mean, it was passed to basically identify agents of either Nazi Germany or communist Soviet Union who were purportedly here in the United States spreading propaganda. Um, so if you think about on, on a spectrum of on one end, there's just pure espionage, right? There's foreign agents who are gathering information on the behalf of a foreign country and reporting back. Those are the espionage laws, and that's not what we're talking about here. On the other end of the spectrum, there's lobbying, private sector lobbying, and there's something called the Lobbying Disclosure Act, which was passed in the early 90s, and that's also not what we're talking about here. FARA attempts to capture sort of the gray area in between, and what it says is that if you are in the United States and you're acting as the agent of a foreign principal doing certain types of activities, and I'll explain what those are, you have to register. It doesn't say you can't do them. What it says is, we just want to know that you're doing these, conducting these activities, who you're working for, you have to register up front, and then there are some ongoing continuous reporting and record keeping obligations. So it's an ongoing compliance obligation that, that kind of continues. It also becomes public. So once you register as an agent under FARA, everyone knows about it. And so there's some reasons why people are sometimes hesitant to do that. Not, not because of anything nefarious, just because sometimes their clients don't want it being publicized on the internet what exactly their agents are doing for them. And so um, you have to have this agent-principal relationship. That's sort of the first element. So what's a foreign principal? Well, you would think a foreign government. Sure, that would qualify. So a foreign government or a foreign political party. But it's broader than that, and this is part of the problem here. It's any foreign individual or entity. So it doesn't have to be that you're working for a foreign government. It's any foreigner. I mean, you could take that to a degree. It could be a foreign parent company of a U.S. subsidiary. So it's extremely broad who the principal is in the agent-principal relationship. Then the other part of the equation is, okay, well, what, what sort of activities on the agent side trigger FARA reporting obligation. 
That's also extremely broad, okay? The department generally refers to it as political activities. And so if you're talking about making an introduction, so you have your foreign principal and you're an agent in the U.S. and you're hired to broker a meeting with a member of Congress or a member of the State Department. Okay, clearly within FARA. That's your, that's your political activity. The problem is the way the statute is worded, it goes a lot broader than that. Um, acting as public relations counsel. A publicity oh, wow. agent, right? Oh. <laughs> a political consultant, um, engaging in political activities that not only influences the U.S. government, but any section of the U.S. public. So now you're talking about media, wow. right? So you're not just you're, you're way beyond now just brokering information between a foreigner and a member of Congress. Let's say it's sort of anything that affects the U.S. public dialogue about more or less anything. Believe it or not, even collecting or dispensing money on behalf of a foreign principal really? is, an, is a FARA triggering activity. Hmm. So what you have here is you have this extremely broad concept of what could constitute an agent and foreign principal relationship. And you have an equally broad concept as to what types of activities that agent is engaging in that would trigger FARA disclosure obligations. And so when you have such vagueness, that's where you run into some problems. Right. Okay, so you've talked about the principle and you've talked about the activity, but can you talk a little more about the agent? Who who's the type of person? Is this just lobbyists that are getting caught up by Farah? Well, Dory, if it was just lobbyists, that would be great, right? It would be very <laughs> understandable. The problem is it's so much broader now. Lawyers, like consultants, media companies. I mean, literally anyone that's acting in pretty pretty much any capacity on behalf of a foreign principal could theoretically be an agent that has FARA reporting obligations. And so that's part of, you know, really part of the problem here is that it's so broad. It's effectively anything the prosecutors say it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll talk about how it's been underutilized, as you mentioned, Meg, in the, in the intro. But because of that underutilization, there are very few cases Mm -hmm. that interpret the provisions of FARA. And the Justice Department has issued some opinion letters, but most of them are confidential, so we don't get to read them. That's so so helpful. Exactly. So (laughs) so effectively, it's stretched to whatever a prosecutor says it is. So I think most of us would agree on what a core FARA activity is. But it has been broadened in some cases to an extent that it's effectively anything the Department of Justice says it is. And that's where you run into some problems. Hmm. Uh, what Can you tell us more about what the DOJ said earlier this year about how it was going to be using uh, FARA going forward, despite c- kind of this landscape that you've talked about, about not a lot of precedent? Well, I think this year's announcement that FARA was going to be a new enforcement policy was really the result of, of two things. Going back to 2016, uh, the Inspector General of the Justice Department, Michael Horowitz, issued a fairly scathing report to the the Justice Department saying that they effectively had no comprehensive FARA enforcement strategy, that registrations under FARA had peaked in the early 90s and were down, that the department was underutilizing its criminal prosecution activity and basically just focusing on getting people into compliance rather than prosecuting noncompliant offenders. And even those who were registering, something like 60% of registrations were either late or otherwise deficient. Mm. So you had this idea that a key 
component of national security law was being underutilized by the department. And the second thing was the 2016 election. And Meg, what you said was basically the Mueller investigation and how you had something like only seven fairer criminal prosecutions in the 50 years leading up to 2016. And then you had this spurry of fairer related activity from Bob Mueller and his team. And I think that uh, you know he got some criticism for that, that he was sort of focused a little too much on Farah and not on you know other types of crimes. But I mean, that's that's fair criticism. But it really did usher in this new generation of saying, OK, we're going to make this a priority now. Hmm. Uh, and that's great. And look, I'm a former prosecutor and I believe in, in strong laws, but you have to have smart laws, too. And if you take a law that's 80 years old, uh, that was really drafted in a different generation, in a different era, uh, and there's minimal case law, and there's minimal guidance as to what it means, you're really leaving it to very broad interpretation, and that just makes it difficult to comply. I want to go more into that, about this is a 1938 law. I don't think in 1938 they really were expecting the Mueller investigation. <laughs> they were dealing with Hitler and Stalin. Can you expand a little more on what the challenges are trying to enforce that law now? Well, I, I think that it's... Um, the vagueness of the law opens it up to some due process challenges. If, if, if defendants can credibly say, I did not understand my obligation to register because the law is so vague, it's very difficult for prosecutors to then convince jury beyond a reasonable doubt that someone should be fined or even go to jail as a result of not registering. Uh, and so, and I think that it also is open to the criticism of many of these types of disclosure laws that I think juries will often find if the underlying conduct is not criminal, they sometimes have a hard time delivering a criminal conviction for failure to register, something that many juries will still come to say, you know, okay, it's serious, but is it going to jail serious? So I think that you have some legitimate legal issues on a due process basis. And then I think you'll also have some practical concerns about convincing a jury that this is something that's worthy of sending someone to jail, particularly if a defendant like Mr. Craig can say, you know, look, I may have given literally true lawyerly answers, but they were accurate. This is There's no precedent for a case like this, and I'm basically being unfairly targeted. And there was some feedback from the Craig case from jurors. Also, that there was a bit of a perception that the, the Craig prosecution was sort of uh, done to sort of counterbalance and that he was, because he was a Democrat and a number of Republicans had been prosecuted by Robert Mueller, that it was a bit of a tit-for-tat kind of evening of the scales. And, and jurors reflected that. You know, they don't like that. And they were very much aware of the political realities. And even though they're not supposed to sort of make those kinds of uh, determinations, it's impossible not to. If what you said is is the case that the DOJ is concerned over what happened in 2016, isn't it, I guess to push back a little bit, isn't it reasonable for them to be looking at using every tool in their toolbox to prevent another 2016. I, I know we're talking about the deficiencies of FARA, but um, isn't that kind of a, a reasonable direction on their part? Well, I certainly think that as we enter the election season for, for 2020, we should absolutely be on high alert for any kinds of uh, nefarious interference by anyone in our election process. And I think that um, people will look to laws like FARA in order to address that concern. But I think when we're talking about election security, it's fair is not quite uh, uh, right for addressing the concerns there. I think what there we're talking about is sort of transparency in terms of advertising. It's, it's getting social media to identify political ads. Um, 
making sure that funding is 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 proper and we don't have campaign finance violations. Uh, making sure that uh, structurally the cybersecurity infrastructure of our election systems is intact. So I think there are other other ways to address the election security concerns, which are legitimate concerns. Um, the FARA reforms that I've seen too are also a little a little questionable because everyone is jumping on the bandwagon to say we want to be tough on foreign influence, particularly again with the election coming up. And there's lots of reform bills before Congress, but the problem is. They're, they do things like they throw resources at the FARA unit. Let's hire more prosecutors. Let's give them enhanced powers. Let's imp- increase the penalties that not that violators will face. But none of them get to clarifying FARA's provisions. And I think that's what's needed before we get on this train of, uh, of more enhanced, more aggressive FARA enforcement. We really need to think about clarifying its provisions and not winding up with another Greg Craig situation where you have legitimate concerns about what the registration obligation was and and practical problems in convincing a jury that, in fact, he had criminally violated the law. Can you expand on that a little bit? What do you think that Craig acquittal really means for the future of fire enforcement? Well, I, I think that if, if we're my call, I, first I would confirm what exactly constitutes an agent of a foreign principle. And what is that foreign principle? I think we can all agree that a foreign government and a foreign political party absolutely is exactly what this law was intended to 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 cover. Um, now, when we get into foreign persons, foreign companies, nonprofits, foreign institutions, I mean, foreign universities, uh, we're getting far beyond here what Farah was intended to do. And that is to um, identify individuals who are working on behalf of a foreign government and spreading information or misinformation within the United States. So I think that what constitutes a foreign principle really needs to be clarified. On the other side is we also need to clarify what activities are FARA triggering activities. And this idea that effectively any kinds of political work, and that work can be so broadly construed, is a problem there. So um, it's one thing, again, when we say directly influencing U.S. policy, right? Getting in front of a U.S. official, getting in front of a congressional committee, that makes sense. But when it's talking about influencing the American public, where something like a media press release can be construed now as influencing policy in the eyes of the American public, and I think we're talking about something that's so broad, it really needs to be clarified. And again, Greg Craig didn't make any introduction or he didn't broker any kinds of communications with U.S. officials. His case came down to whether or not his press contacts about the work that he had done for the Ukrainian government were influencing U.S. policy in the eyes of the U.S. public. And that's really what this came down to. And so I think when you have a case that can be brought under such a stretched interpretation of the law, you're talking about problems here. And combine that with this push to aggressively enforce it, you're going to wind up having more cases like the Craig case. Hmm. Can you talk about um, how some of this fair enforcement uh, and compliance has translated into client work for you? Uh, can, can you talk about, I think you have some clients who are facing this sort of like media contacts with the public potentially being an issue. Well, I think in this, in this environment, uh, any kinds of professional service firms, lobbyists, lawyers, uh, political consultants in the United States have to be at least cognizant of this law and think about, 
are the types of activities that I'm doing for my client something that can get me into trouble under FARA, and should I consider registering? Uh, there are some exceptions to FARA registration, but much like the FARA law, they are almost entirely what the Justice Department says they are, and they are therefore have to be considered pretty narrow. So for example, there's a commercial exception. So if you are uh, providing bona fide non-political commercial activities for a foreign entity, you're supposed to be exempt, right? Um, if you are providing academic information, so pure academics, again, non-political, academic, religious, scientific information in the United States on behalf of a foreign entity, that is supposed to be exempt. Uh, there's a lawyer's exemption. for So if you are a lawyer representing a foreign client, there's an exemption, but it's very narrowly construed because it only applies to judicial or administrative proceedings. So where lawyers can get into some trouble is, it's one thing if you're representing a foreign client in court. It's another thing if you're having conversations with prosecutors at the Justice Department? What if it's pre-prosecution conversations? What if it's conversations with CFIUS, which is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., in the M&A uh, perspective there? Um, cases like that have been considered communications with members of the U.S. government that are not judicial or administrative proceedings. And so um, sometimes us lawyers get into some more of a public relations role where we carve statements for clients that are acceptable for public release. Well, now we're getting further and further away from the lawyer's exception under FARA, and we're getting more into public relations. And so when your work veers into those areas, you have to seriously think, okay, am I now in a FARA disclosure type status where I can get into some trouble? Not just me, but my firm can get into some trouble if I don't register. And also, how will my client feel about that? Wow. Um, given all of that, would you suggest that law firms regularly register any law firm that's representing a foreign entity? I think firms have to take it into consideration. I, I don't think that universal registration is feasible. I don't think that clients will really tolerate that because, again, it means it, it becomes public. And so, hmm. uh, and I think that would be overkill. And I don't think it's what Congress intended when they passed this law. I do think that Clients have to be cognizant of lawyers' obligations, and lawyers have to be cognizant of what exactly could trigger a FARA disclosure obligation and what exactly the lawyer's exception provides for. I think we have to read that very carefully. So I can tell you that when I do take on client work from a foreign client, one of the first things we think about is, is there a FARA registration obligation here? And if so, how do we handle that? On the, on the company side, I think companies and their compliance procedures should think about FARA alongside other types of compliance like Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and cybersecurity and money laundering for financial institutions. Or do we have an idea of what our obligations could be under FARA? And do we have a handle on what kinds of activities could trigger FARA disclosure obligations? Wow. Joe, this has been such an interesting discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. If listeners want to follow more of your work, where can they find you? You can always get me on Cadwallader's website, and that's Cadwallader, C-A-D as in dog, W-A-L-A-D-E-R, or on my Twitter handle, which is Joseph Moreno, J-O-S-E-P-H-M-O-R-E-N-O. -E Thank you so much again, Joe, for joining us. Always a pleasure. 
You've been listening to Law X.0 from Bloomberg Law. For more Bloomberg Law analysis, visit news.bloomberglaw.com slash Bloomberg hyphen law hyphen analysis. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dory underscore Goldstein. That's D-O-R-I underscore G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N. And I'm at Meg McAvoy, M-E-G-M-C-E-V-O-Y. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Suspending the Rules is Bloomberg Government's weekly deep dive into what's happening on Capitol Hill. As is often the case with suspension bills, there's something of a theme behind them. Every Monday, BGov reporters and legislative analysts preview the week in Congress. This would be a rejection of what the Trump administration called for. And break down the biggest bills on the agenda. Autonomous vehicles are going to know everything about where we go and what we're doing. You can listen and subscribe to Suspending the Rules wherever you get your podcasts. Find more information at about.bgov.com.